Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. series on Judges, kind of looking at it from a big point of view. It's a book that we don't usually get through, but each summer I take an Old Testament book and we work our way kind of through in a, in a, in a big sections. And so we've worked our way from Genesis. Uh, now we're in Judges. Last week was our introduction. So this week we're actually going to be in Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. The message titles: the expected, the unexpected, and the unknown. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone here that gets infected every year by March Madness? Is there any NCAA? Okay, there's just one, two, just a few of you. I, I don't know if you remember, but this used to be just one of those things that just used to be the most exciting thing that had everything drops during March Madness. It's when the men's basketball and women's, but men's seems to get obviously the more the, the play with it. Uh, it's one of the most, but one of the best parts of this tournament though, is the filling out of a bracket and predicting who the winner is going to be. And every year, one of the most fun and exciting themes of the tournament is the expected, the unexpected, and the unknown. It's that team who might take the trophy at the end. You always have the expected teams, right? You know, Kansas, Duke, North Carolina, uh, UCLA, though it pains me to say that, or Michigan. Uh, Then you have the unexpected, some mid-major team that goes on a thrilling winning streak and threatens to upset everyone. Then you have the unknown. That's the dark horse, that team that squeaked in or wasn't on anyone's radar who becomes that Cinderella team and is ready just, and then we find ourselves rooting for that person. Today we have all three of these as we look at Judges chapter 3 and we consider what God is teaching us. Last week we opened the pages of Judges to find that the 12 tribes of Israel were not going too well. They were not doing well. Shortly after the death of Joshua, the next generation of Israelites had abandoned the covenant of God. They had neglected to conquer all the land of Canaan. They made treaties with its inhabitants and they began to worship their false gods. This failure was the result of, as we saw last week, of godly morals, godly faithfulness, and godly leadership. Now, as we move through the exploits of these 12 judges, you're going to notice that these men that were chosen by God to deliver his people seem to start out good. Today, you're going to see three good examples. But as we move then to Barak and and Deborah and and, uh, uh, um, Gideon and so on and so forth, they seem to get worse and worse or less and less people that you would want to emulate. But yet God continues to choose to use flawed, sinful men and women to accomplish his purposes and his will. So just to open up, let's look at Judges chapter 2. Or actually, you know what, I think I'm wrong. It's actually Judges chapter 3. I got this all wrong in my notes. It's Judges chapter 3, so hopefully you can turn one page over or one chapter over. The first six verses are on here, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles. It says, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, the next generation. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Leveth Hamath. For there were the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Now, that little portion is going to be very important. It's going to help us understand how you and I are to live today. But look at verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Father, what a devastating last sentence, that last verse. But Father, I pray that you open up our minds and hearts to receive what you have this morning as we just consider the book of Judges from people far, far removed from ourselves, a culture unknown to us. Father, we can just relegate this to fun, exciting stories that might make a good movie or TV series, but there's more going on here than just something to entertain ourselves for a few moments. So just give us wisdom as we open up. Help us to consider your word, and Lord, listen attentively, and may your Holy Spirit do its work. In your name we pray. Amen. Give me just one second, guys. I want to just take a look at, yeah, we're good here. We're just moving, guys. All right. In this passage, the writer of Judges lists the nations that serve as instruments of God's judgment against Israel. Remember, he had sent these people to judge his nation, to oppress them. The basic problem in Israel at that time that required the deliverance, the judges, was Israel's failure to completely conquer the land and its descent into a cycle of sinful rebellion, a cry out for deliverance on Yahweh, then sending leaders to rescue them. <coughs> this pattern is like a rinse and repeat we saw last week from one generation to another. You see here on the, mat, on the, on the monitors, this pattern that repeats throughout the book. First, you see sin. The people abandoned the Lord. Then you would see oppression. God punished them by bringing up an, an oppressor, an enemy, a foreign power to oppress them. Then you would see there's repentance. The people would cry out to God for deliverance. And then God would send a judge to, to deliver them and bring them peace. Is the last one as people experience peace and safety for a time. Only then to repeat that cycle over and over and over for generations, for years. Now, as you and I just open up to the first six verses of Judges, we see that the pattern is established in verses 1 through 4. You're seeing that cycle of sin. You see, their position is expounded in verses 1 and 3, where all of a sudden that they're living in the land of Canaan, the promised land, promised to them and their forefathers, but yet their position is, 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 is kind of precarious, as now they have enemies living among them and around them. We see the purpose is expounded in verses 2 and 4, where God uses them to teach them how to fight and also how to test them and test their faithfulness. But then we see the problem expressed in verses 5 and 6, where they are, they are intermarrying and intermingling with people that they were not allowed to do. So you see here real quickly just a map of Israel to kind of get your mind. And I don't know if you, how well you can see it, but you see here the 12 tribes of Israel. I think on that map you'll see where the judges kind of lived or worked in that area. You might find it in your Bible or on note if you need it more. But this is kind of how the land looked at that time. Now what we see is that Israel fails to drive out the Canaan Canaanites. Pastor Tim Keller notes, as you see on the monitor, that Israel is living in the land of God that God promised, but alongside people who worship 
false gods because they didn't fully trust God and so didn't fully obey him. Let me make a pastoral editor note. This is why you and I always will struggle with sin is because we don't fully trust God and don't fully obey him. It comes one after the other. The reason we don't obey God is because we don't trust him. The reason we don't want to trust him is because we just don't truly want to obey him. And we need to understand that's where sin comes in. And because of this attitude, this hard attitude, God gave them over to their enemies who cruelly oppressed them. Generations removed from slavery in Egypt, they are now once again under the yoke of bondage. True to his word, God provided these men who would rise up and deliver them from the clutches of their enemies and then reinstate peace. Now, these men were called judges. They were not judges as you and I think. We saw this last week. They're not wearing black robes. You know, it's not like a Supreme Court that's dispensing laws or settling disputes. No, these judges are are more of like military leaders or generals who ruled for just a season over a region of Israel. Typically, it wasn't all over. They weren't kings over all the 12 tribes, usually just a region. And they were either self-appointed or appointed by someone else or, or asked by someone else. However, <clears throat> the one thing that you and I need to recognize as we go through the book of Judges is that these men were not always the best of men. They were not men that you and I would choose as role models. We wouldn't want them to date our, our, our daughters. Many of them we probably would not even invite over for dinner. They were men many times that were troubling Pastor Vernon McGee notes that all the judges were themselves limited in their capabilities. In other words, they weren't the men that you most likely would expect all the time. In fact, each one seemed to have some defect or handicap that not only sometimes served as a hindrance, but also be God used as a positive asset under the sovereign direction of God. In chapter 3, we're introduced to the first three of our judges, of the 12 judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And so I want to take a moment to consider each one. So Judges chapter 3, you can open the book. We're not going to read all of it. I pray that you've already read it on your own, but we're going to look at it and we're going to summarize it. We're going to see that the first judge, as you see here, is Othniel. And his campaign against the king of Mesopotamia is in verses 7 through 14. And we read that the tribes at that time is is speaking of mainly Israel in general. The oppressor is Mesopotamia, the king of Mesopotamia. The years of oppression was over eight years. So God then raises up Othniel to, to help deliver them. And they found rest and peace for up to 40 years. Othniel was the nephew of Caleb. And he had won the right to marry Caleb's de- daughter due to his military conquests. There's no other known quality other than his heritage and pedigree is given. Yet due to his previous experience, he, w- he would be the expected person to be used by God. He was the one that says, wait, this is Caleb. You might remember Caleb. He was one of the two spies that gave a good report. God gave him a mountain at the age of 80 years of age. He still had his full strength. He conquered his land. He he used Othniel, who married uh, his daughter because he was able to defeat some enemies. This is a man you would expect to be called into service. In verse 10 of chapter 1, we read that the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel and he went out to the Lord and the Lord gave him his enemy and his hand prevailed against Kushan Rishathim. 
king of Mesopotamia. Now that's the first key, the first judge. Now the second judge we'll look at a little bit more deeply. Now he's a southpaw. Any southpaw here? Any left-handed men or women? Only one in the nursery, I think. His name is Ehud. And his exploits are in verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the year of the Lord. After 40 years of peace, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Elgon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we see here on the monitor, as we go to the next one, we give an, an exciting count of his, of his exploits. We see that the tribe, again, was Israel. The oppressor, this time, is King Moab. The years of oppression were 18 years. Ehud has risen up, and they have peace after that for 80 years. Ehud was from the small tribe of Benjamin. Scripture notes that he was left-handed, either due to a deformity. The Hebrew there that, that we get left-handed means that is actually his right hand was either bounded or restricted in some way. So he either was deformed or he was being ambidextrous. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we actually read that the men of, of Benjamin were actually trained in both the right and left-handed. They could shoot arrows and shoot the bow and use and sling uh, scene shots from either the right or, or left. So whether that was in that do days as well or whether he was deformed in any way, we're seeing that he is left-handed. And that becomes important in his exploits and in his success. The writer gives us an exciting account of Ehud's exploits in verse 15. And we're going to go ahead and read through that just because it's an exciting part. In verse 15, we read, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord after, what, it was 18 years. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Elgon, the king of Moab. The, uh, and Ehud made for himself <coughs> excuse me, a sword with, with two edges. So he took a sword and he put an edge on both sides. A cubit in length, so about 18 inches long. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes because he was left-handed. And he presented the tribute to Elgon, king of Moab. Now, Elgon was a very fat man. And he, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gigag and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud, in verse 20, came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into Elgon's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade, for he did not pull out the sword out of his belly. And dung came out. The Ehud went out into the porch, and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now, Ehud was tasked with bringing tribute. So 18 years, Israel would have to raise money like a tax, and they would have to bring it to that king. 18 years they had to do this. Finally, they said, Ehud, could you help us? So Ehud is now bringing that money in the year eight, the 18th year. He's bringing that money to the king. And under using the ruse of a barrier of a secret message, he was able to get alone with the king. Some time alone. Now, being a southpaw was important. Being left-handed aided in his assignment as the majority of the people in that day were right-handed. So for most people, they would take their right hand and they would put the sword in the left. 
So if you were with a guard and you were coming in the king, he would pat you where he would think the sword would be. So they would think the swordman is going to be on the left side because you're right-handed. A guard would normally check. So he was able, though, because he had it on the other side, he snuck it in. They didn't have the, 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 the procedures that you and I think of as a police officer today, patting you fully down or TSA or something that matter. They're just checking where they're expecting that sword to be. They find nothing. Now, Key Elgon is described as very fat, which again seems to be kind of off-putting, but it's important to the story. Ehud, we see as he's sitting there with him, he drives the sword completely in, causing the king's fat, I mean, all the way in, causing the king's fat to swallow it to where Ehud couldn't grab the handle and pull it out. And even if they could find the sword in time, there's no way to be able to remove it. In verse 24, we then read of his escape. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, or they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the king and op- or the key and opened them, and they lay their lord, or they, they lay their lord dead on the floor. And he had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to the Sierra. The roof chamber is a small room that's located on the roof, and it was a place to go to relieve themselves. In other words, it was the bathroom. So he's there. It's kind of the cool of the day. So he's sitting there. So they, they don't want to embarrass the king, or they're themselves embarrassed. They don't want to say, hey, you're taking too long. What are you doing? This is the king. Embarrassed, they were reluctant to interrupt. And this delay allowed Ehud to escape along with those who had went in him. In verse 27, after the death of King Ehud, we read of the, or King Elgon, we read of their great victory. When he arrived to, with his friends, to, his, to the rest of the military, he sounded the trumpet hill in the country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after them. They seed the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. It was a disaster for Moab. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is one of the most interesting and exciting stories that we read in the Old Testament. But what makes this extraordinary is that Ehud was the most unexpected of heroes. His status as a member of the smallest tribe of Israel didn't mark him as a man of substance. And the bonus of being a left-handed man allowed him to execute his mission successfully. So we see the expected, the one with the pedigree. We see the unexpected, the man from a small tribe. But now we go to the last verse and we see the man that's the unknown. That's Shamgar. He receives one short sentence in verse 31. And after him it says, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. We see the tribes again at this time is Israel. The Philistines are now the oppressors. We're not told of the years of oppression or how many years of rest and peace they did, but we do see that the judge was Shamgar. 
He is the unknown. Not much information is given about him. Nothing is more is known about him. It's, it seems that from his name that he was not even an Israelite. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. An ox goad, as he says that he killed 600 men with an ox goad, is a stout stick with about eight, uh, about eight to 10 feet long and six inches wide, as you'll see here on the monitor, with a sharp metal, end, uh, metal tip to prod oxen, while the inner, other end was flat curved blade that was used for cleaning a plow. What is unknown is if he killed the 600 Philistines himself, like Samson, or with others, or if it all happened at one time or over a period of time. The Holy Spirit deemed it sufficient enough just to mention his name, their oppressors, the number killed, and the method by which they were dispatched. In any case, he was raised up by God and delivered for a time being Israel from their oppression. Now, in summarizing this chapter, we see the sovereignty of God at work along with human responsibility. And that's, that's an important truth that you and I are going to learn here in a moment. But we also see the justice of God against sin, but we also see his mercy on those that repent and turn towards him. So let's first look at human responsibility. As you're just looking at Judges 3, and you're just looking at it very quickly here now, you're going to see that human responsibility is demonstrated in Israel's decision to live among the people and not conquering them. In entering to marriage covenants with the inhabitants of Canaan, in serving the false gods of the Canaanites, in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, of forgetting God and then crying out. So you see human responsibilities. There were real choices that Israel made during this time that put them in this constant cycle and with the predicaments that they had. However, in the same way as you and I are reading that portion of scripture, I don't know if you caught it, but you also see the sovereignty of God at play as well in leaving the nations in the land, in selling them into the hands of their enemies, of hearing their cries for help, in raising up a deliverer, in empowering the deliverer to accomplish great things, in strengthening the hands of their enemies against Israel and then in granting them peace. So in this short chapter, you and I see the drama that's been playing out throughout history of God's sovereignty along with human responsibility. Now, there are several things we can learn from this ancient book. Too often, and you might agree with me here and understand this, too often we consider the Old Testament books just a collection of history stories of a land far, far away, of a people no longer living, and in a time and a culture far removed from our own. We have to remember that they are much more, though, than just a selection of exciting stories or a mixture of legends and myths, which some believe it is, that serve to teach a moral story. It's more than just Aesop fables. Again, we must recognize that even Judges is inspired by God, written by the Holy Spirit. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. It is still relevant for us more than 6,000 years or 4,000 years later. I want to give you three things here, four things here that I think that we can learn that the Bible is trying to teach us, the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. Number one is the problem of entertaining sin. So here is, hear me on this. The problem of entertaining sin in our own life. Many of us would wonder why in the world does God allow 
the Canaanites to remain in the land if he had power to eradicate them once for all. For you and I, as we read through Joshua's last year, we read that Israel fought, but we read time and time again that there was the Lord who delivered these people into their hands. Why is it that God allows these people to remain in land? Remember, they couldn't, they didn't defeat them for number one is because they were mighty. They had chariots. They're stronger. They're mightier than we are. They're more than we. But time and time again, God gave them victory over bigger numbers and greater armaments. So why didn't God just kick them out in the first place and just do with it, deal with it? The writer of Judges answers that question by stating that Yahweh left them in the land for two purposes. Did you catch that? Number one, so that the preceding generations may learn how to fight and defend the land. They were little children when when their parents defeated all the other lands of Canaan. So he said, well, let's, let's leave these people here so they may learn how to fight and defend themselves. He didn't want them to be in the same place as the Egyptian slaves two generations before who never knew warfare. Not only that, number two, they were left as a test of Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. In other words, he let these evil pagan people be there to test Israel's faith. To test the genuineness of their faithfulness to the covenant of God to be holy, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbors. Remember, we you know everything from Leviticus and Numbers, everything that we learned there. Will you be faithful? And so he uses it to test them. Again, we see the effects of both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, this thought can bring some tension. As we consider who is responsible then for this awful mess. Is it God who left the people there? Or is it Israel who chose not to conquer the land? What helps us to understand this dilemma is to recognize that God ordains that the enemies remain for the purpose of training, preparing, and testing his children. In order that they may be stronger, ready, and faithful in serving God. However, the children of God have no godly purposes in mind for their choices. They desire what the Canaanites have. They desire their women and men as mates, their gods for worship, as well as a fear of man and a lack of trust in God's providence. So what God means for good, they're not meaning it for good or for God's glory. They want it for their own good. God does all things for his glory and our good. But for you and I, if we're honest, when we make our human choices to sin, to go against God, to fail in our faithfulness, we're choosing something much different and choosing it in a different way than God does. So the problem of entertaining sin, we need to recognize this, and this helps us understand why God allowed it to happen, ordained it to happen. But then we come to number two. Is the issuing or the issue of God's judgment. Why does God then judge them so harshly? It seems troubling that God would judge the Israelites, his chosen people, so harshly by giving them over to their enemies. Doesn't God bear some responsibility for allowing them to make sinful decisions? Didn't he ordain the situation that put them in this place? It's easy for us to think this way. If God is sovereign, why didn't he choose to keep them away from this sinful environment? He knew how bad the Canaanites were and how weak the children of Israel were. Why did God even put them in this place? But you and I, let's not, here's a warning. 
You and I need to be very, very careful or here, or you and I can be guilty of complaining against God or accusing him of sin himself. We must confess and accept that God is sovereign over all of creation and that he has every right to ordain all things that happen. And at the same time, he is still righteous, just, and wise in all of his decisions. His decision, thank you, to allow the Canaanites to remain in the land as a test for Israel was not only for his glory, but also for his, their good to test them and to strengthen them. In the same way, his judgment against them for his, was for his glory and their good. Through these events, God demonstrates in his righteousness that he is holy and he's without sin. In his justice, in that he will not tolerate sin. Now, this is a hard concept for many of us because we are taught that God is love, right? It seems that the only attribute that we acknowledge of God is that he is love. Of course, that's because we do not want to consider that God would ever judge us for our own sin and our own choices. We want a loving, merciful, kind God that gently prods us to do good, who meets our every need and only mildly scolds us when we wander away from his command. In other words, listen to this. We want a God who delivers our every want, but yet expects very little of us. Can I say that again? We want a God who delivers our every want, meets every need that we have, but yet expects very little of us. Yes, God is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. But also we must, must remember that he also reveals that he's righteous, holy, and he demands justice, just as you and I demand justice. We read in verse 8 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Because they did what was evil in his sight. You got to remember that the children of Israel shared the heart of those from the days of Noah. When the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every attention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does this not explain our Romans one world today? You and I are living in the days of Noah. Now this is not just about ticking off God. Okay, his judgment is not just about ticking him off and him seeking vengeance. God wants the best for his children. Like a parent who loves his children and wants the best for him, he has to put down rules. He has to put down requirements and expectations and discipline so that their children can enjoy life to its fullest. What is striking is not that God judged them harshly. Listen to this. It's not that God judged them harshly, but that it took them years. It took them years, 80 years to cry out in repentance. Sounds like you and I today. But number three is the solution of God's deliverance. The solution. Just as he did with the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, God heard, remembered, saw, and knew their suffering. And at the appropriate time, he sent a deliverer to bring them peace. Even though they had abandoned him, God showed his children love and mercy time and time again when they repented and turned back towards him. Are you getting a theme here? 
His deliverance, including raising up a, chi- uh, a child, raising up a judge, defending their en- or defeating their enemy, and bringing peace in the land, was always when they cried out in repentance. What a wonderful, loving, and kind, sovereign king who offers forgiveness and a restored relationship to his rebellious, wandering children when they cry out to him. And then number four, and the last one here, is, and then we'll continue on, is the surprising choice of heroes, of deliverers. What is interesting is that the men Yahweh chooses to serve as judges to deliver Israel. As stated earlier, the first few seem to be good, but as we continue through the book of Judges, they become worse and worse, flawed and flawed, more sinful and more sinful. In the three that we are examining today, I've labeled them the expected, the unexpected, and the unknown. Othniel had, or uh, Athenial had the pedigree, pedigree with the connection to Caleb, which would have been expected, and would the, or would have been an expected choice of someone that God and Israel would look to and use. Ehud would have been unexpected as he came from a small tribe as well as being left-handed, but that actually worked in his favor. Shamgar is simply the unknown that the Holy Spirit chose not to include much information about him or his exploits. But what you and I can learn from Judges 3 and just those three men is that God takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. God uses small things to accomplish big things or to accomplish great effort and change. Consider the rod of Moses, from turning into a snake to parting the waters. Think of the stone and the slingshot of David against the giant Philistine Goliath with all of his armor and weapons. Think of the needle and thread of Dorcas in the New Testament who shared the gospel through her lay work. Or we think of the five loaves of bread and a few fish from a little boy who brought his lunch. God uses these events to demonstrate not only his wrath and mercy, but also his power and providence. He doesn't always draft the tallest, the strongest, the most admired, but the weakest, those of little repute to accomplish his purposes. In other words, if you want to write a formula when we look at Judges, one man plus God equals supreme power. One man, one God, one God equals supreme power. Paul writes in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can what? Be against us. Scripture is filled with men and women that God used and turned into heroes. Too many times we're guilty of the, the same attitude as Samuel, who while looking for a king to replace Saul, was looking for outward appearances. But God responded, you know this verse here on the monitor, do not look on his appearance or on uh, the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord what? Looks on the heart. All that we have read and learned this week is interesting and also informative. But it also should lead us to a transformative experience. Through the events of this third chapter of Judges, you and I are pointed to Jesus Christ as our deliverer and as well as his plan for our sanctification and service for him. First, riffing off what we just shared about the four things of God, 
And this is what you and I need to learn as we're looking at how then do I apply this? How does this match or how does this work for us today? First, consider as children of God why he still allows sin to reside in our flesh, in this world. Think about it. Wouldn't it be nice that after accepting Christ, choosing to follow him, that not only would our sins be forgiven, but also eradicated? Anyone here tired of battling sin? Your thought life? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to live in a world filled with sin? If God could just give us a little Christian bubble and life would be nice and I wouldn't have to endure suffering? I mean, think of sin and all it is. When we continue to think, why do we have guns and why why do we have to fight with guns? Well, it's because we live in a sin-filled world. Why do we have prisons and jails and law? Because we live in a sin-filled world. Everyone is doing what is right in their own heart their own eyes. Every intention of the heart is wicked. No more battling with sin. No more snares left lying to trip us up. No more dealing with Satan, the enemy. However, God in his wisdom has ordained that sin remains as a way to help us to learn to fight and test our faithfulness. That's what you and I can learn. Just as God left the enemy in the land of Israel for them to learn how to fight and learn how to test their faithfulness. So God has allowed sin to reside in our old flesh to teach us how to fight it, to look to God, and to be tested for our faithfulness. Will you choose God or will you choose your own sin? Will you fully trust God and obey him or will you choose to follow after the world? In making us into the image of his son, God's sovereignty and providence works with human effort, human responsibility, human choices in our effort and our obedience. God has delivered us from the power of sin, amen? It no longer has power over us. He is, he's delivered us from the penalty of sin, but he's also promised to deliver us from the presence of sin one day. And until that day, <coughs> Jesus serves as our example, our advocate, and deliverer. Here on the monitor, John chapter 17, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed this. He says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In other words, yes, you and I live in the land surrounded by the enemy. But in the same way, we are not of the enemy. We are to be separate The church is to be God's lighthouse. We are to be the salt. And while we wait for our final deliverance, when Christ comes and delivers from the presence of sin, we are to consider the failings of the Hebrew children. Instead of adopting and desiring the things of the world, we are to fight, flee, and resist. That's the Christian's job. Fight, flee, and resist the inhabitants of this land, the attitude, the the culture of this world. D.A. Carson warns this. You may want to take a picture of it with your phone here on the monitor. It's very important. I'd put this as a screensaver if anyone has screensaver. If you're going to get a tattoo, maybe put this one on. That'd be a long one, though. But listen to what he says. We are to deal drastically with sin. 
We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoying nibbling a little bit around the edges. People, that's the church today. That's what they're doing. That's what Christians are doing. We're, we're looking at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah like Lot, and we say, well, that looks like a nice city. Let me move my tent a little bit closer. Hey, I need to do some shopping. Let's go up to the gates. Well, you know what? Their houses look really nice. I'm tired of this tent. Let me walk into the gates. Hey, these people aren't so bad. Let's do what they do. Let's enjoy what they enjoy. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, right? For the things of the world are of the flesh. And the things that are in the world will lead to what? Death. You and I got to remember this. Here we are, as, as John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will what? Be killing you. Mortify sin. Put away those things. The King James, mortify it, kill it, get rid of it. Some of us are pampering it. We're flirting it. We're enjoying just a little nibble of it. Well, I'll just watch a little bit. Or I'll look at a few of these pictures. Or I'll read this book. Or I'll just laugh at that joke. Or I'll adopt a little bit of this attitude. Before you know it, we're armpit deep into the mire, the slaw of despond as Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, crying out for help. Many of us, that's our problem. When our feet starts getting a little bit sticky into the mud, we don't realize the problem we have. What is it? Someone said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you ever want to pay. It's very true. So you and I can learn from judges that we're not to entertain sin. We're to fight it with all that we have. Recognizing that it's there to test our faithfulness. Secondly, as children of God, there is no judgment left for us as there was for Israel when we sin. But only loving discipline designed to bring us back into a right relationship. And that's really what's happened in Judges. I mean, 40 years or what was it? Eight years of oppression, 18 years of oppression. That's God's discipline to bring them back. And so you and I have to recognize, I love the promise in Romans 8, 1, that there is no now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer condemned if we're in Christ and we fall into the mire. If you and I get tarred with sin, there is no condemnation. But it should be a wake-up call that you and I need to get back if we confess our sins, right? He is faithful and just. However, for those that are not in Christ, I have to share this. If there's any of you that do not know Christ, if you are not in Christ, there is no hope, but only condemnation. For scripture says it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Let us be aware of that. Let's not fall for that. Let us not wait eight years, 18 years, more, you know, forever to cry out to God. Let's quickly repent, for that is God's promise. He knows that we're weak. He knows we live in a sinful world. Let me tell you, he knows that you're going to sin. And to be honest, God ordains that. That's, God, that's, that's God's sovereignty. He, he's putting you in those situations. But it's your human responsibility and choice that's choosing to grab that apple, so to speak, and to bite of it, to enjoy it, and then to give it to others. Romans 1 tells of that. They're those who approve of such things. Let me tell you, this is off the record and getting me in trouble. But if you're flying the LGBT flag and promoting it and approving of it, you're just as guilty as those that engage in that type of activity. 
That's what Romans 1 says. We need to be very, very careful. Thirdly, and this is matching up with the interpretation that we just done a little bit. Third, in both cases, God has provided his anointed one to deliver us from the oppression of sin. God hears our cries. He delivers us from the oppression of sin and the schemes of Satan. Of course, this deliverer is not a flawed, sinful man, but he is Jesus Christ himself. As the second person of the Trinity, he was sent to live a life of perfection. He gives this life as a ransom for us by facing crucifixion, bearing the penalty of sin and the wrath of God. In doing so, he secured our forgiveness, our adoption as his children, and the internal inheritance that brings us peace with God. This all comes when you and I repent of our sin and turn and trust him completely. Let me share with you, Jesus is the ultimate and final deliverer. Fourthly, in his divine plan, God uses the expected, the unexpected, and the unknown to accomplish his purposes. At first, he was an enemy of Christ and his people. Saul, who was renamed the Apostle Paul, met all, met all of the categories that one would expect of a leader. And I'm not going to go through all of you know Philippians. Paul was someone who would say, well, this person, if he accepts Christ, he would be expected. The disciples, though, are examples of the unexpected. They were just fishermen. They were from Galilee, that backwards country. In Acts 14, or 4.13, we read of the, uh, the astonishment of the religious leaders when they are investigating disciples for, a, for their preaching and teaching and miracles. And when they were standing before him, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They were unexpected. The word of God would spread the, 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 the way, is what it was called in the beginning, that turned the world upside down was done by uneducated men. Isn't that amazing? God uses the expected, but God also uses the unexpected. Some of you today might be the unexpected. There's some of you that people would say, oh yeah, he's going to lead music, or he's going to teach, or he's going to preach. But there's some of you that some would say, wow, I, I didn't know that he could do that or she could do that. You're the unexpected. God is ready and wait, waiting for you to be used by him. But then there's the unexpected. And I'm going to just summarize very quickly as we're going just a tad longer. In 1 Samuel 16, you remember Saul is looking for a new king to replace Saul. Saul had disobeyed God. He met all the qualifications for the most part, yet he was, a, he was a total failure as a king. So Samuel goes, is sent to the family of Jesse. And as you recall, they, he brings all of Jesse's sons, one through seven, and there's the first one. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. And Saul th or, or Samuel thinks, this must be the man. But remember, God says, well, I'd look on the heart. All right, so he goes to the next one. God says, no, I rejected him. But he's big and strong and tall as well. Eventually, God says, well, I'm not going to use any of them. And Samuel says, well, who else is there? I don't know anyone else to choose. And he finally says, do you have another son, Jesse? And he goes, yeah, I have one. He, he's right now looking at the sheep. He's the youngest. He was the unknown. But out of all of them, he became the greatest king that Israel had ever known. 
A man the Bible describes as God's own heart. The man who wrote the majority of the Bible, as you and I know, the Psalms. He was also a flawed, sinful man and many times caused much hurt, but yet God took the unknown shepherd boy and used him for the great. You hear me say it all the time. And David served God, uh, God's purposes in his generation. What a great thing to be said. I point this out to encourage you this morning. Because you may be here this morning wondering if God could use you for his purposes. You're wondering if you could rise up to the challenge. Or maybe you're concerned or saddened that you just don't measure up to what others might expect. But don't be dismayed. Jesus himself was the unexpected. And Isaiah, it says of his human form, it says that Jesus grew up like a young planter, talking about the Messiah. He was like a root. It says he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was, a, he, was a, he was one whom men hid their faces. Jesus was not expected. When Jesus came, he was unexpected. He was unknown. But yet he was the final deliverer. We can find comfort in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here on the monitor. He says, For consider your, your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to, things nothing, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human may boast in the presence of the Lord. Let me share with you this morning in our church today, he has given us the expected, the unexpected and the unknown to serve his purposes to build up his kingdom and to edify his people so let us give thanks as we close this morning for these three judges that obeyed God and served him in their generation let us be firm in serving obeying in the faithfulness to the word of God ready to cry out in repentance when we fail let us commit to looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And above all, and above all, let us give worship and praise to our God who delivers us in his loving kindness for his glory and our good. Let me close with this portion of scripture. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, the one rejected by man, but the one used by God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. These three judges could boast in nothing but in the Lord, Yahweh. Let us do so this morning, for we too are the expected, the unexpected, the unknown. And may we serve God in our generation that God's people may find peace. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.